You're listening to a podcast from the BMJ. Welcome to the BMJ podcast. This week, Mabel Chu finds out about late onset type 1 diabetes and how diagnosis of the condition may be missed and thought of as type 2. Future research will help guide us and say, well, at what level of ketone body production is that? Actually, this is type 1, or is this a patient with type 2 who's had nothing to eat? But before that, BMJ Deputy Editor Trish Groves hears about new evidence on combined metformin and insulin as a treatment for type 2 diabetes. Well, we have with us today Bianca Hemmingsen, um, who is a PhD student uh, based in Copenhagen, Denmark. And Bianca is the first author of a systematic review and meta-analysis of randomised trials looking at metformin and insulin versus insulin alone for type 2 diabetes. And this is a paper published in the BMJ. Dr. Hemmingson, there's already been one Cochrane review of 20 trials of insulin and oral hypoglycemic drugs versus insulin. And there have been some other related systematic reviews as well. So what did you add with your research question? We added a lot of other trials. And um, the reason for conducting this review was that we could see that the other meta-analysis on this topic had a very limited search strategy compared to one that we would like to make. Even though there is something on the topic right now, we extended the search. Yes, your search was very wide indeed. Um, You didn't just use the normal databases. Could you tell us um, a bit more about how you did the search and how you chose the resources? Yes, of course. We contacted a librarian who searched uh, the major databases for us. Usually people, they search PubMed and Medline and the Cochrane Library. We added some other databases as well to get a comprehensive search. And as well, we looked at all the abstracts presented at the American Diabetes Association Conference and the European Association for Study of Diabetes Congresses as well. And we contacted the relevant pharmaceutical companies, that means major companies that produce insulin or metformin. And we searched the U.S. Food and Drug Administration website for unpublished randomized clinical trials that might be relevant for the review. In addition to that, we searched for self-technology assessment reports, and we contacted all authors of the included trials if they had any unpublished data or unpublished trials. And what were you looking for in particular? Which um, kind of trials and what follow-up period? We looked for trials which were comparing metformin with insulin versus insulin alone. In patients with type 2 diabetes, and the participants have to be over 18 years. And they should have a follow-up time of more than 12 weeks. And it should be a randomized clinical trial. You say in the paper that you were focusing very much on outcomes that were relevant to patients. Can you tell us what outcomes you looked at? Yes, we thought that the most important outcome for patients must be all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality. A lot of other meta-analysis and trials have focused on surrogate outcomes, but what is important for the patient is if they're going to live or if are they going to die and which major complications can they get. So we focused on all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality, but besides we also focused on other patient-important outcomes as a microvascular disease and microvascular disease. Yes, whereas previous meta-analyses have looked at what sort of surrogate outcomes? 
Oh, they have looked at the at our, at our primary outcomes as well, but also at um, surrogate outcomes like the one we are looking at: HbA1c, fasting blood glucose, weight, and BMI and stuff like that. But the previous meta-analysis on the topic has not been able to conduct the meta-analysis or make any conclusions about mortality and micro and microvascular disease. So um, that's why we want to do this analysis again with a more extensive search to see if there was any trials that they haven't got. So how did it go? Yeah, we found quite a lot of trials compared with the other meta-analysis on the topic. But unfortunately, there was a very few trials reporting all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality. This might be due to that reporting and also because the, um, the trials had a very short duration. Only two trials had a duration of two years or more. Right. And in the end, you were able to um, put data from, into the meta-analysis from 23 trials with just over 2,000 participants so what did you conclude after um, doing all of this work? We concluded that the evidence we have to make this combination insulin plus metformin versus insulin alone is very sparse. There are very few data when you're thinking of how many patients actually are getting this combination. There is really a, a need for more randomized clinical trials comparing these interventions because as we showed also in the trial sequential analysis, only a very minor part of the evidence is collected before we can say anything about which intervention might be best for the patients regarding all-cause mortality and cardiovascular mortality. So for clinicians um, listening to this conversation, is there anything that you can recommend about uh, actual clinical practice? Based on the data we have from this meta-analysis, we cannot support or abandon the current guidelines we cannot um, judge whether we should use metformin and insulin together, if it's better or if it's worse than insulin alone. When we're looking on patient important outcomes, there are too few data to to decide anything. Okay, but the current guidelines do recommend the combination? Yeah, the current guidelines recommend the combination. The combination of metformin and insulin reduce some of the surrogate parameters that you usually when people they start insulin, they reduce the HbA1c and they reduce the weight gain and they reduce the insulin dose that are required to get normal glycemia. In that aspect, it was better to combine, but still these are surrogate parameters. Dr. Hemmingson, thank you very much. Thanks a lot for showing interest in our meta-analysis. And that article is now available on bmj.com. Now, practice editor Mabel Chu finds out more about late-onset type 1 diabetes. I have with me in the studio Dr Dan Nasserson, who's a senior clinical researcher at Oxford and also a GP. Dan, welcome to this BMJ podcast. Thanks for having me. Dan, um, your article in the BMJ is on the fact that late-onset type 1 diabetes is easily missed. Now, let's start with a... Um, quick description of what you mean by late onset type 1 diabetes. Well we all know what type 1 diabetes looks like. These are patients who have raised blood sugar levels and they need insulin to control those at diagnosis. But more importantly they need insulin to suppress the generation of ketone bodies um, which can make you quite unwell with ketoacidosis. 
And traditionally, we always think of these as perhaps have this condition happening in children, but we realise that actually this can happen in older adults as well. Um, a lot of uh, junior doctors will have experience of seeing people on an adult medical take up to the age of 20 coming in in, in DKA, diabetic ketoacidosis. But there's also a um, range of older adults perhaps presenting in primary care because they get unwell perhaps a bit more slowly. Um, and we were interested in trying to work out if there's a way in which we could um, detect these patients more easily in general practice. So these are patients who need insulin diagnosis to control diabetes and to suppress the ketone body production um, that's caused by insulin deficiency, but they happen at an older age group, and that may be what catches people out. Mm. Um, and how old do you mean by an older age group? Well, typically we're thinking over the age of 35, really. Mm. Um, that's when uh, people are usually thinking, well, it must be type 2 diabetes, they're an older age group, and it's, it's, it's patients in those groups that we think are perhaps easily missed. Mm. Now, that's starting to worry me a bit. How common is it in, in this uh, older age group? Well, it's interesting. We, when we looked into this in order to kind of provide a bit more evidence for the article, we realised that actually there isn't very good um, evidence based in populations. This is where we're looking at, say, taking a broad population of patients who are otherwise healthy and living their lives and just seeing what happens in them. It turns out there's very little evidence about type 1 and type 2 diabetes, and so we've been to sort of quite a few um, corners of the world to try and find evidence, and perhaps one of the best ones was from uh, a paper in, in Turin, um, and that found that essentially around about 10%, so 1 in 10 of patients in, the, say, the 30 to 50-year-old bracket coming in with a new diagnosis of diabetes, about 1 in 10 had type 1 diabetes. In other words, they needed insulin at diagnosis to control the metabolic abnormalities that were caused. Um, but that's overall between 30 and 50. If you were to look at, say, just the 30 to 35, a bit higher, almost one in three are type 1 at that point. And then it settles down a bit later as you get towards nearly 50. So although in that bracket it's about one in 10, it's actually a bit more if the patients are younger. Now let's move on to why it's so easily missed. Could you um, explain some of the pitfalls to diagnosing this? Yeah. Um, and I think the real nub of this is perhaps some of these patients look like they might have type 2 diabetes. GPs are very familiar and see a lot of cases of new, of new cases of type 2 diabetes each year. And increasingly, um, in uh, a lot of PCTs now, GPs are doing a lot more of the management for the whole pathway of patients with type 2 diabetes. And so we're looking at patients, again, older than 35, who have essentially presenting with first or polyuria, perhaps classic features, and um, they don't look too unwell, they're the right age group, and sometimes there may be a family history of type 2 diabetes. Now, in general practice, we often use family history as to help us guide and think, well, we know that these raises the risks, we know there's uh, a um, increased uh, familial clustering for type 2 diabetes. Perhaps what's less well known is that there are fat pedigrees or family histories where type 2 and type 1 occur together in a very sort of mixed kind of pattern. So the fact that there would be relatives with type 2 also actually makes you more likely to have type 1 as well as type 2 diabetes. Um, and I think the age and the fact that the patients don't look that unwell and the family history sometimes might make people or my rheumatic clinicians think this must be type 2 diabetes um, without necessarily thinking, well, is this, could this be type 1? And we've all heard of, of children with um, uh, delayed diagnosis of type 1 diabetes who uh, become quite dangerously ill. Um, is this as big a concern with adults, older adults? 
I think it is, and I think the case probably illustrates that quite nicely. Um, there was you mean the case in your the article. case? That's right. Yeah, that's right. And the, this chap ended up being admitted far out of hours primary care on call uh, with um, acidosis and um, very high glucose levels and was quite unwell. He did very well, and now he's fine. But the the I think the message there is that actually. Adults are, can be just fragile as children sometimes in this. And okay, the, the, the time zone for, for children is perhaps they will get more unwell more quickly. Um, but I think the, the fact that it, there's still a risk of significant um, risk to patients by missing the diagnosis is, is very much there. Okay, well, let's move on to um, how we actually diagnose it. Okay, so the diagnosis of, of diabetes itself is quite straightforward. Um, with either a random glucose with symptoms um, or fasting glucose and the levels are a a fasting blood glucose of greater than 7 and a random glucose greater than 11.1 and if you've got symptoms you only need one of those blood results uh, in that zone and if you haven't got symptoms you need two on separate occasions for the diagnosis. Um, What's more difficult though is obviously differentiating is this person diabetic because they are resistant to insulin or are they diabetic because they're not making enough insulin and there's no other there's no real reliable guide from routine blood tests or from the history actually and so the only way to 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 look at this and and to differentiate them is to work out are ketone bodies being produced Mm. in 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 any reasonable amount sufficient to produce ketones in the urine so NICE recommend that we should test for ketone urine, in other words, dip the urine to we see ketones. Um, and that would maybe a marker that you might need exogenous insulin or i.e. to be given insulin. However, well, I think we've all seen patients who haven't had much to eat today that produce a little bit of ketones. And so the question of how much ketones is perhaps an open research question for future uh, to help us work out much more accurately. Is this a patient with type 2 diabetes who hasn't had a chance to eat anything because they've been at work and rushing around and waiting in the surgery to see me? Or is this somebody who has type 1 diabetes? That's more of an open question at the moment. And perhaps pragmatically speaking, what a GP would do would be to get the patient back. I think that's right. I think that's right. And one of the messages that we thought was interesting from, from this paper also that I again highlighted in, in the case in the article was that um, some safety net advice, some advice about what to do if mm. and certainly if people develop vomiting um, and become very unwell and feel very unwell actually they should urgently represent and be reassessed and it would be highly likely if it is type 1 they'd have an awful lot more ketones than they had previously very detectable in the urine um, and, and they would certainly need admission to be sort of assessed and treated at that point um, but if we, I think if we don't give patients that message then and we tell them well, don't, well we can help you with your type 2 diabetes and we're going to try various um, medications and lifestyle and there'll be an educational components too and if then they may think well I've just got a DMV bug I'm vomiting I'm unwell for that reason and may stay at home thinking well I'll just do the sensible things of keeping myself hydrated as this chapter in the article and actually getting more and more metabolically unwell. Okay we've talked about the patient who might be uh, uh, might not have had anything to eat and therefore might have ketones but that doesn't necessarily lead to a diagnosis of type 1 diabetes but do all patients have ketones in their urea with um, type 1 diabetes of late onset? Interesting point. The only studies that we could find, um, based again for people who were in hospital, not people managed in the community, these were hospital cohorts, about 20%, so one in five patients did not have ketone urine presentation. 
So the other the other difficulty here is that if you haven't got ketones in the urine, doesn't rule it out. And at that point, I think the message about representing if you the patient develop any of those features of ketoacidosis, vomiting, lethargy, and general malaise, then then it'd be very important to represent them. So. Uh, Perhaps it's a message we should give all patients who we think probably have type 2 diabetes, whether there's ketones in the urine or not. Mm-hmm. What other tests might be done to differentiate between type 1 and type 2 diabetes? Well, this is, this is a really interesting area. Um, large cohort studies, particularly those in Oxford, the UK PDS, the United Kingdom Prospective Diabetes Study, has shown that you can differentiate who is going to need insulin and who isn't by looking at um, markers that tell us how much how much insulin is being produced. That's called the C-peptide level. This is a protein that's also produced with insulin that we can measure. Insulin doesn't hang around in the body very long, but C-peptide does. So we can measure that, and that gives us an indicator of, 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 of is insulin being produced? Does this pancreas work? And the other thing that we can look at is uh, are the antibodies that, that produce the destruction of the beta cells. These are islet cell antibodies or um, what's called GAD, glutamic acid decarboxylase antibodies. And diabetes specialists are very familiar with these tests and, and how they can be used. Um, but because they're not absolute in terms of predicting which patients are going to need insulin and um, which patients just have type 2 diabetes. NICE hasn't recommended them to be used, but specialists can use them for certain kind of patients and they will have a feel for the patients when those tests will add a bit of value in making an earlier diagnosis that's more accurate. So those tests are for the kind of real difficult overlap patients that, 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 that diabetologists will have a lot of experience with. Um, and our job is, is to select the patient that may look like that for the specialist to have a look at rather than for us to, to do these rather complex tests that I don't think will add much uh, into primary care decision making actually. Mm. Okay, so not one for the GPs to rush in an order. No, 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 I, w- I, wouldn't, I wouldn't be thinking of, 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 of using them certainly. I think the more thing that I would find helpful would be what level of ketones means that a patient needs to be seen that day. For me, that would be a real real kind of help for primary care, both in hours and out of hours. Yeah, a real niche in the evidence. That's very helpful. Okay, and um, you've alluded to some management. Uh, would you like to elaborate on how this sort of diabetes is best managed? Well, the major risk to the patient with type 1 diabetes are from um, the uncontrolled production of ketone bodies and the effect that has on acidosis, potassium shifts and renal failure. So usually these patients would need to be seen the same day in secondary care for and blood tests can essentially risk stratify the patient. Um, they, and there are ketone body levels that most laboratories will do, and that will guide management. Is, does this patient need intravenous insulin and fluids and electrolytes, or can they be managed with subcut injections and some more careful monitoring? Um, and that's in, in the acute phase. And then it's the long-term goal for type 1 really would be a management share between secondary care and primary care. Um, for type 1 diabetes... Um, nice to recommend that, that specialists essentially drive and coordinate long-term care for patients um, and primary care will obviously be very important in, 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 in supporting that as well. Hmm. Okay Dan, um, so I guess the take-home messages for me as a GP is to think of type 1 diabetes even if uh, the patient 
looks to all intents and purposes as though they're in the right age group and have a family history suggestive of type 2 diabetes um, to always, always measure ketones. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and if ketones are present, but not absolutely, um, you're not absolutely certain if it is a real marker of type 1 diabetes uh, at that point or whether they've just been fasting, to give them really good safety net advice about uh, what to do if they're vomiting or they uh, develop uh, symptoms that are suggestive of a diarrhea and vomiting sort of illness. I think that's right, and I think I think that's that's the case of patients where there's no ketones in the urine. For those that do have them, I think at the minute we don't really know quite how we should be handling those patients other than assuming they've got type 1. And until we get better evidence, for example, we can test ketone levels as we can glucose levels with handheld meters. And maybe in future research will help guide us and say, well, at what level of ketone body production is that? Actually, this is type 1, or is this a patient with type 2 who's had nothing to eat? So I mean, maybe the safer thing is to assume it's type 1 until people like me and others produce useful evidence that gives you a cut point to use in, at, at the coalface of primary care. Okay, well, we'll wait for that evidence eagerly, but in the meanwhile, it's been a really useful rundown on um, what GPs need to know about uh, late-onset type 1 diabetes. So thank you very much, Dan. Thank you very much. And again, that article is available online on bmj.com. If you're interested in more diabetes content, we have a new portal set up, bmj.com forward slash diabetes, where you can find articles from across the group. That's all for this week. Next week, Gavi, the Global Alliance on Vaccines and Immunisation, shares its success in rolling out roto and pneumococcal vaccines in Ghana. And we hear how the Veterans Health Service changed to become one of the best in the USA. Join us then. For more information about this programme and other BMJ Group podcasts, please visit bmj.com.